So here we are at the end of our second day together in terms of full days. And um, what you don't know, but you now will, is that <laughs> Alexis and I were in the same teacher training cohort. And we both brought up the rear in terms of our anxiety about speaking to large groups. <laughs> so you all are the beneficiaries <laughs> of uh, us holding that particular place among the rest of our colleagues. And as you can see, we manage it in different ways. Uh, so I have lots of paper here that has lots of words on it. And we'll see where it gets me and us. And one of the reasons why there's so many pages is because I can't see, so I had to make the writing really big. So you don't have to worry that this is filled up with uh, size nine <laughs> uh, from the computer. So really, really quite um, pleased and happy uh, to have this opportunity to offer a few of my musings and uh, understandings of uh, what we've been up to and what we're doing. Already in the two days that we've been here, there's been a feeling of uh, richness. Whether or not there's been a sense of ease or a sense of lots of eruptions, there's been already a richness that swells and evolves and comes forward as a result of all of us being here, gathered together, supporting our efforts towards self-understanding and to finding a good enough placement in the world to support our well-being. All of us here joining our intentions to establish and nurture our practices as we move forward towards wisdom, freedom, and sustained joy. Ajahn Sumedho, one of the uh, significant uh, monks in this lineage, talks about the good of suffering. What he's inferring, I think, is that when we are able to fully accept dukkha or suffering, dukkha being the Pali, we also are able to create some distance between ourselves and our difficulties. The way out of suffering is the way through. Like you really can't avoid it. To let go of suffering, we have to admit it into our consciousness. To resolve, to dissolve, to put down, to understand, to deconstruct. The reality that uh, if we're blessed and fortunate enough to be walking this earth in these human bodies, part of what goes along with that is this uh, constant consistent awareness throughout life that there is suffering, the first noble truth. And we come to uh, this path 
in the hopes, with the aspirations, with the intentions, with the desire uh, to relieve that suffering. Aversion. You know, I liked it this morning when Eugene talked about the, uh, I think it was the phone thing. And he said, just stop it. Yeah, like, just stop it. And when I was thinking about what to talk about tonight, I said, well, what would be the most helpful on this second day? You know, we're kind of heading tomorrow into the middle of the retreat. And what could be useful for people um, in addition to just stopping it? And what came to me to speak about were uh, the hindrances. So I'm going to offer some reflections about the hindrances tonight and to actually um, offer you the opportunity to really get present and just check the attitude of your mind. So one of the things that I mentioned on the first night, and I think Pam it was, and mentioned yesterday when she did the, uh, the loving kindness, suffering and distress and chaos and that side of the spectrum of being has been in existence most probably since the beginning of existence. Even the earth arose out of eruption, out of fire, out of energy. I did a little bit of uh, research just in terms of uh, this country and just as a reminder um, that those that came before us navigated and negotiated whatever they needed to such that uh, they stayed, which then allows us to be here ourselves talking about the ancestors, both the ancestors within the lineage and our own personal ancestors um, from our families and our uh, communities of people that we come from. So here in the United States, uh, enslavement of people began in 1619 and continued on in that form until 1865. That's not that long ago, really. That's like maybe my great-grandparent, great-great-grandparent, maybe. And I say in this form because slavery still exists today, in case anyone wasn't clear about that. Enslavement of women and children in many places. The colonization of America by the Europeans started in 1492. Here's this passage which some of you may be familiar with from 1859. Listen for the applicability of this to today. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope and the winter of despair. Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. That's what was happening in Europe 
1859, just before the French Revolution. So suffering and trauma and chaos and disarray and discontent uh, and oppression and war and all of those kind of uh, collective ways of suffering have been in existence. And then you put that together with whatever our own individual experiences of suffering is and the families that we come from, the suffering in those families and the uh, ancestral lineage and the suffering. And we're kind of like fortunate that we took a chance on this thing called Buddhism and have some faith in the man that did what he did in order that we have access and availability to this path, which when followed with um, discipline and practice can bring us some relief. So James Baldwin um, wrote this little prose back in the 1960s. Some of us were here then. Life is tragic simply because the earth turns and the sun exonerably rises and sets. And one day, for each of us, the sun will go down for the last, last time. Perhaps the whole root of our trouble, the human trouble, is that we will sacrifice all the beauty of our lives, will imprison ourselves in totems, taboos, crosses, blood sacrifices, steeples, mosques, races, armies, flags, nations, in order to deny the fact of death, which is the only fact we have. It seems to me that one ought to rejoice in the fact of death, ought to decide, indeed, to earn one's death by confronting with passion the conundrum of life. One is responsible to life. It is the small beacon in that terrifying mystery from which we come and to which we shall return. One must negotiate this passage as nobly as possible for the sake of those who are coming after us. It is the responsibility of free men to trust and to celebrate what is constant. Birth, struggle, and death are constant. And so is love, though we may not always think so. And to apprehend the nature of change, to be able and willing to change. I speak of change not on the surface, but in the depths change in the sense of renewal. But renewal becomes impossible if one supposes things to be constant that are not. Safety, for example, or money, or power. One clings to them, to chimerous, by which one can only be betrayed and the entire hope, the entire possibility of freedom disappears. And the word chimerous means a thing that is hoped for or wished for, but in fact is illusory or impossible to achieve.
some of what's been in the field of our work, um, has been engaging with our hearts and minds with an intention of seeing clearly, of seeing things as they are, by familiarizing ourselves with these systems, these body-heart-minds, such that we can move to a place where we're able to discern uh, what is wise, what is wisdom, what is skillful from what is not. Last night, Alexis, in his talk, spoke about being just with our ordinary experience, cultivating the ability to just be present. Pamela reminded us that Dharma means nothing more than the truth. How do I cultivate freedom? Use what feels easy. Awareness offers a sense of experiencing what's here now. Protection. On retreat to be natural. The space and time to be awake. Remember to be aware. Kindness. Calm and ease and clarity in the midst of chaos, feeling fear. That's all the traveling we've done in two days only. We've hit many places and spaces. Ajahn Sumedha says, consider meditation and the unfolding of wisdom more like a marathon than a sprint. Be willing to learn from everything. This practice is for life. So just as a container for the whole uh, reflection uh, on the hindrances, I've already stated the first noble truth, which I'm sure um, everyone in this room has had some experience with, whether from the uh, more subtle ways of... <laughs> This is me. I'm not saying any of y'all had this, but trying to walk up that hill and catch my breath. <laughs> a little bit of suffering around that. Um, to the extreme of uh, grief and loss and uh, anger and rage and many of the things that um, you all are bringing to the altar of awareness to be seen, to be illuminated, to be held with grace. Then there's the second noble truth. There's a cause. There is the arising of suffering. No one is exempt. The third noble truth, that there is a cessation or an overcoming of suffering possible. And the fourth noble truth, that would be the Eightfold Path, or the Way. Now this other thing about suffering in terms of discernment and familiarizing ourselves with how we interact and engage with the difficult um, 
aspects of living is known as the uh, concept of the second arrow. Some of you have heard about it. Some of you probably have not, um, given that this is the first retreat for many of you. So with, with uh, there, there, you know, another way to think about this is that there's, in life, there's pain. So I'm not using the word pain and suffering interchangeably. So there's uh, physical pain, there's emotional pain, there's psychological and mental pain. And that's real. You know, you burn your hand, it, there's pain. You lose a loved one, there's pain. But the thing that uh, we humans do, which I was talking about this in one of my groups today, um, that our animal brothers and sisters don't do, um, we have the wonderful construct of language. So when we experience this pain, we then go on to make up a lot of stories about it. Thus the second arrow. So first there's the pain, that's the first arrow. And then there's the stories, the way we engage with it, how we say it is, what we do about it, that causes the suffering. The suffering exists within the domain, oftentimes, of the second arrow. And I was, I was saying into this group that um, really, and this, I don't know, this might be a stretch, this might be... Like when uh, Alexa said last night when he started talking about karma, well, I don't know. Well, I don't know, but I'm going to say this. There's no real good or bad. There's just experiences. And our inclination, particularly uh, in the West, I don't know um, enough personally um, about some of the other lands and cultures, but particularly um, in the West, we are so heavily inclined towards catastrophizing pain, intensity of pain. You know, when an animal, any of you that have pets uh, may have seen this, or if you grew up on a farm or um, were around animals in nature, um, you know that when an animal suffers some kind of pain or some kind of situation, uh, usually uh, we'll do one or two things. It'll go off in a corner somewhere and it'll shake. It'll re-regulate its nervous system. Because it's not making up stories about how the car almost hit and, and if I had just stayed home and my wife, you know, Mrs. Antlers, told me that I shouldn't go. And every word that's spoken just hammers hammers, hammers that pain into our nervous system such that it causes the rollout of the suffering behind it. So on the one hand, rising to the resolution of suffering uh, has a simple antidote. Uh, but on the other hand, as a result of all of our conditioning, both our individual conditioning and the conditioning of our culture, um, presents a very difficult uh, layout in terms of working with the suffering. 
So, you know, um, uh, you know me, I said this on the first night, I love the dictionary when I'm using a word to see what the English people are saying about what the word means. So this word hindrance, how it's used in our languaging, something immaterial that interferes with or delays action or progress. Hindrance, a difficulty, a factor causing trouble in achieving a result or producing a negative result, a deterrent or impediment. Hindrance, a barrier, roadblock, any condition, and we talk a lot about conditions and conditioning and being conditioned, any condition that makes it difficult to make progress or to achieve an objective. Now that's the one that I think is the most relatable to what we're up to. In the Dhammapada, which is the Buddhist scripture of classic text of teachings, Verses from the earliest period of Buddhism in India conveys a philosophical and practical foundation for Buddhism. There are two distinct goals stated for leading a spiritual life. The first is attaining happiness in this or if it was in your belief system, a future life. The second goal is the achievement of spiritual liberation freedom, absolute peace. Many of the key themes in the verses are presented in dichotomies or pairs. For example, grief and suffering versus joy. Developing the mind versus being negligent about one's mental attitudes and conduct. Virtuous actions versus misconduct and being truthful. It is written in this way, I think, to describe the difference between what leads to desirable outcomes and what does not. So see, that didn't say bad and good or negative and positive, but what leads to outcomes that are skillful and wise and supportive and what leads to outcomes that are chaotic and hurtful. That's the bottom line question I said to someone today. Uh, that we want to ask, are my actions and thoughts causing harm to myself or to others, foundationally? One of the verses in which the Buddha encapsulates the teachings from the Dhammapada, doing no evil, engaging in what's skillful, and purifying one's mind. This is the teaching. That word purifying, I said to someone, I have, sometimes I have trouble with it because it like, has a lot of connotations on it. But there is an aspect, particularly in being in retreat, where there is a detoxing and a purification of our systems, of our minds and our hearts are going on. And sometimes um, it feels like things are getting worse before they get better. 
And oftentimes when that happens, you can be assured that you're in the crucible of transformation that's available as a result of engaging with this practice. Practicing mindfulness is easy. Remembering to do so is difficult. We've been using, I think even someone asked a question about remember or something um, one of the times and we were talking to teachers um, and uh, Pam and Eugene um, put a spin on the, uh, what do you call it, the root of the word remembering. And so member is separation or parts. And to remember, to put back together, to make whole again, just like dismember. So as Alexis was using it last night, it's not remembering like a historical remembering of something, but coming together again in a whole way to be able to engage with your lives uh, from a position or from a place of wholeness and wellness. So if you engage with this practice and accept this philosophy and practice as a way to live a good and peaceful life, a good and peaceful life of liberation, you have come upon many of the forces of the mind which make it difficult to stay attentive in the present moment. <laughs> when I was uh, writing this, and the, the, um, some of you from the 60s and the 70s might remember that slogan that was Jesse Jackson, keep hope alive. And it kept going across, keep awareness alive. <laughs> So y'all can walk with that. You can take it. That's it's a little ditty. You can pull up anytime you want because you don't need to be so like in this kind of protected environment for that to travel through the brain. So keep awareness alive. What we've all experienced to varying degrees um, is that oftentimes Sometimes, depending on how resourced we are, depending on the vitality and strength of practice, we're hampered in our ability to remain mindful. The hindrances cause us uh, to be hampered in our ability to have clear insight, to develop concentration. Our attention is pulled in many directions other than where we wish it to land and interferes with our efforts to meditate. Not only interferes with our efforts to meditate, but interferes with the, um, in my mind's eye, the actual um, intention for sustaining and maintaining awareness. It's not just meditating, it's sustaining maintaining. That's what gets us through. That's what allows us to be a contribution to ourselves, to our families, and to the world. Even when we have the best of intentions to stay focused and present, these forces can propel us into states of preoccupation and distracted thinking. And one of the things you get to see on retreat, which many of you are already engaged with, is there's nothing out there. There's nothing out there. It's all the machinations of our minds. Just experience an event happens, nature. And then we do whatever we do with it as we make contact 
via our senses. The good news is these forces and challenges offer us an opportunity for the deepening of practice and shores up our skill as meditators. And they're not bad. They're not personal failings. As a matter of fact, I would say if we're present to uh, various hindrances and when they're operational, when they're operating, that we are solidly in the practice. Almost like you want to throw your arms and say, bring it. Because I'm ready. I've been doing this practice. I've been clearing my mind. I've been settling my body. Come on, I need to see you. Because I don't want you driving me from back there and I don't know where I'm going. That's how I relate to the hindrances. So it's good news when I recognize, oh, I'm not sleepy. I'm just avoiding something here. It is a necessary progression of practice to investigate the forces of distraction and agitation with the utmost care and honor, for they provide us the opportunity to break through the cloud of confusion and reactivity that our minds frequently dwell in. We must understand the true nature of the hindrances and how they work as it is much easier to find freedom from something when we know it thoroughly. Although there can be numerous hindrances, um, and there are, there are five that traditionally are identified as particularly important for us who are taking this particular journey. Sooner or later, all meditators will have to address the hindrances sometimes all at once. So, even though I'm going to give it to you linearly, it's not like they build on each other or that it's a linear path. It can show up all together. Some, you know, we may have an inclination towards some and not others, that kind of thing. So there's sensual desire, aversion or ill will, Sleepiness or an old-school language, sloth and torpor. Restlessness and doubt. So sensual desire, the mind wanting something pleasurable, grasping after sense objects. Sensual desire keeps the mind looking outward, searching after this object or that in an agitated and unbalanced way. Sensual desire can be food, comfort, physical and sexual experiences, sounds, smells, sights, and other sense pleasures. It is the very nature of sense desires that they can never be satisfied. There is no end to the seeking. Living without wants, wishes, motivations, or aspirations is impossible. However, to approach freedom, we must emphasize skillful desire and distinguish or discern, which is a word that I like, the healthy, useful desires from the unhealthy ones. So it's not, you know, that's just the way of saying it. it's not, oh, just like it's not about us disappearing thoughts from our minds, because the mind is created to think, just like the heart is created to beat, like the lungs are created to breathe. 
the mind creates thoughts. It's not about getting rid of them, but it is about mastering uh, uh, and training the mind to incline towards skillful means and wise understanding. Um, on one of my retreats, one of my earlier retreats, because I, I did a lot of my retreating at IMS um, when my practice was growing and maturing, and the food there is really good. It's really good here, too. But, like, that's my mama's food, you know. <laughs> I'm a visitor here. That's my mama's food. Um, and there was something we were having. I don't know what it, I don't remember what it was, but it's something I really liked. It might have been macaroni and cheese. I don't know. Something I really liked. And I was so gluttonous. <laughs> I filled my, I went back like three times. And mac and cheese, you know, that's right. I went back like three times. It was all right for the moment. But what it was, <laughs> <laughs> um, ended up experiencing, which I know some of you must have at some point, in, uh, a food hangover. I never knew you could get a hangover from food, but... The next morning, I was literally unable to get out of the bed. So that was a response and uh, um, uh, a total hindrance <laughs> in terms of sense desires. You learn a lot on retreat. Also on retreat at IMS, I was on a six-week retreat, and uh, it was in the spring, late spring, and the flowers were just absolutely gorgeous. And I came out of uh, my, uh, my room where I was and went outside, and there was this um, uh, tiger lily that must have been hitting its supreme manifestation at that moment that I saw it. And I was just ooing and eyeing and breathing and communing. And then the thought, oh, I got to go get my camera so I can capture this, holding on to the beauty with attachment. So I ran to, ran to get my camera. It literally took less than a minute and by the time I got back the pinnacle had passed and I missed it because I wanted to hold on to the experience forever so some examples of how the hindrance of sense desire operates and it can fool you you might think you got it together <laughs> pay attention ill will or aversion the mind is filled with dislike, the condemning mind, anger, fury, resentment, hatred, annoyance, aversion, irritation, vexation, loathing, spite, resistance, avoidance, criticalness, boredom, complaining, grudge, fearfulness. Oh, that sounds really nasty, doesn't it? <laughs> Ill will. Can also be really, really, really subtle. Like those are kind of like big examples uh, of ill will. I know, I don't know, I'm coming up with a lot of examples from retreat. Uh, you all must be inspiring me. Um, I was on a women's retreat at IMS, and uh, I'm left-handed, so I like to sit on the corner so I can eat without bumping elbows with people. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring in, in the race dynamic. And I was one of two black people on this retreat with a lot of white women. And I had my seat. And about two days into the retreat, this woman kept sitting in my seat. 
She did it every meal for like three days. And I'm like, doesn't she know I sit there? Can't she see I'm left-handed? She saw me. I was literally killing this woman with my thoughts. <laughs> and at some point it occurred to me, <clears throat> it's not about you. It's not about that identification, that ownership with having it my way. There were lots of left-handed corners in the dining room, but that particular one, I had already claimed it with my identity. And the clinging for having access to it caused me to um, be really unskillful I know she felt it. She had to feel it. <laughs> um, so in those, and that was in silence. So when I say it's not always these big, big ways that we engage with these hindrances, and a lot of them, you know, I'm, I'm speaking about them kind of um, externally, but there's the internal hindrance, which you would get to experience a lot on retreat, doing harm to ourselves also to keep in mind. It is the mind that strikes against the object and wants to get rid of it. The mind is burning with desire or burning up. Wisdom is acquired through familiarity, and one of the tasks in practice is to become familiar with the hindrances. With ill will, this requires a willingness to shift attention away from whatever we are hostile towards and instead turn it towards the experience of ill will itself. It can be useful to be mindful of it in a non-judgmental and non-reactive way. It can be helpful to hold the ill will in our focus without acting on it or pushing it away, being mindful of how ill will feels physically. There's always, whether we're attentive to it or not, there's always a correlation between a state and the physicalness of it in the body. One of the best teachers we walk with. Examine the beliefs that underline the ill will. What assumptions do we believe about how things are supposed to be? With no aversion to aversion, mindfulness can make us independent of aversion. Did you all get that? With no aversion to aversion, mindfulness can make us independent of aversion. Sloth and torpor. The mind is sleepy or too apathetic to see clearly. Sluggish, laziness of mind, a mind that is heavy or dull. Sloth and torpor can arise from the absence of desire and aversion. The lack of stimulation that accompanies constant desire and aversion can be deflating and even depressing.
one or two of you spoke about a similar thing today um, in, in w people that I interacted with in the groups in terms of turning in your technology and how not having access to that stimulation uh, made space for some other seeing to come forward, which actually is always in the background, but we just usually have the ability to turn away from it or to access some substitute so that we don't have to pay attention there. Although sloth and torpor may be present, it doesn't mean that energy is not available. It's just that we're not accessing it. As we mindfully watch our thoughts, instead of actively participating in them, we can effectively stop them from draining our energy. Restlessness and worry. The mind is too anxious to stay steady. Regret, jumping from one object to another, agitation, a state of over-excitement. It's important, you know, we're doing a lot of teaching and experiencing and engaging in explorations around the mind and the workings of this body and heart but also in terms of the practice and speaking to the arising and coming forward of the hindrances, it's really, really important didactically to get enough exercise, to get enough sleep, to drink enough water, to have good nutrition, because when we're under-resourced, it leaves us much more susceptible to have difficulty and even times inabilities to maintain the focus and clarity that we need in order to make right choices or wise choices. So I just threw that in there because it, there are some real practical um, things that we need to do to take care of this system such that it can operate as optimally as it's capable of at whatever level that might be. And I know in this nation, sleep deprivation is major. That the majority of us do not get enough sleep. Be mindful of the cause in terms of restlessness and worry is helpful. Not the agitation itself. For instance, when pain is the cause of restlessness, uh, the feet that go to sleep or the pain in the knees. It should be addressed. When thinking is a big part of restlessness, it can be useful to relax the thinking muscle. Doubt. Skeptical doubt, a lack of faith that you can stay mindful of what is true and to act skillfully. Doubt freezes the mind and undercuts our ability to cope with all the other hindrances. What am I doing here? Why did I come? I can't do this. It's too hard. Um, I was telling my colleagues and friends um, at dinner tonight that uh, 
about four years ago, I was giving my first Dharma talk and uh, I was scheduled to give my first Dharma talk and I had a panic attack. Never had one before. Um, fortunately for me, I'm a therapist in my other life, so I knew what it was, but knowing what it was didn't have any impact on it <laughs> rolling out. Uh, and when I look back in terms of what the antecedents of that, there was so much doubt. It was early in my training and I didn't have any experience yet of giving a talk and the doubt literally um, paralyzed me. And so sometimes it can be that extreme. But then other times it can be really just a soft whispering, I'm not good enough. I don't have the capacity. I don't want to fail. So just listening for what the particular flavor of doubt might look like for you at any given time. When the hindrances are strong, we lose our ability to see clearly. These hindrances cloud our mind and prevent us from knowing the cause of our suffering. When the mind is not obscured by hindrances, attachment doesn't arise. And your mind is willing and able to be with what is. You are not caught in wanting anything, wanting to become anything, or wanting to get rid of anything. If we purify the mind of the hindrances, then the mind is no longer stiff and rigid. It becomes fluid and can be shaped into something beautiful. Don't remember who it was now, but um, one of my teaching colleagues put forward the um, concept of flexibility of practice. So just as there is a a connection or a correlation between the fluidity and balance and flexibility of our practice and the all of that in terms of how our mind is manifesting. So lastly, I just want to um, complete this. Um, what do you call it? I forget what you call it when there's a word and the letters mean, each letter means something. What would you call it? Yeah, acronym. But th I think there's another word, too. Anyway, acronym will do. So Gil Fronsdale, one of our colleagues, um, offers us a way to take the hindrances into our mindfulness practice with consistency of five different aspects. The acronym for this is BELLA, B-E-L-L-A, BELLA, which translates, that word BELLA translates in English into beautiful. He says the acronym describes the mind that is revealed when the hindrances are overcome and mindfulness becomes strong. So Bella, B. When a hindrance appears, it is useful to first let it be 
not acting on it or reacting to it. It is the training in staying present for our experience without being in conflict with it. No need to be discouraged, angry, or self-critical when faced with a hindrance. Letting a hindrance be is a practice of finding an inner stability in the face of destabilizing forces. E. Examine. This is said to be the most important aspect of our practice with the hindrances. Exploring the hindrances involves recognizing the components, its physical, energetic, cognitive, and motivational aspects. Examine the hindrance itself, its absence, how it arises, how it is removed, and how to prevent it from arising again. L, lesson, L-E-S-S-E-N, lesson. Lesson its strength. Relaxing both the body and mind are good ways to lessen the intensity of strong bouts with a hindrance. If a hindrance is overwhelming, lessening its power might require removing yourself from a situation that reinforces it or directing one's attention to something that has a calming effect. Second L, let go. Once we understand a hindrance, it can be appropriate to let go of it. This ability to let go of the hindrance increases with practice. Letting go is like a muscle which grows stronger with practice and time. There was a yogi that I had an interview with and this person said, oh, it's like a gym for the mind. I thought that was really good. A. Appreciate. When a hindrance is no longer present, it is useful to take time to experience its absence. To be mindful and present without being hijacked by a hindrance is a joy. Relief that arises when the mind is free of hindrances is a delight. Unhindered attention is a treasure. With practice, mindfulness eventually becomes stronger than the power of the hindrances. Choosing to be mindful of a hindrance is a significant move towards being free of it. In closing, I'll say, let the practice release your heart from fear. Let the quieting of your mind and the clear seeing of the truth release you from confusion and clinging. Let understanding and acceptance of the way things are in this moment flower the fruit of wisdom. Thank you for your attention and your listening. Let's sit for a minute.
Eagle Poem by Joy Harjo. To pray, you open your whole self. To sky, to earth, to sun, to moon. To one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear can't know except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound but other circles of motion like eagle that Sunday morning over salt river circled in blue sky in wind swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are truly blessed because we were born and die soon within a true circle of motion. Like eagle rounding out the morning inside us, we pray that it will be done in beauty. In beauty. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.